currently in a, a series called uh, Hard Questions, Honest Answers. And in this series, we're taking questions that were given to us uh, by our congregation. And uh, we took those questions, we arranged those questions, we narrowed them down to 10. And so this fall, we're, we're going we're gonna to plunge through those 10 questions. And the first one here is, why should anyone care about going to church? This showed up quite a bit in the questions that we got back. Maybe somebody had a child who'd walked away from the church. Maybe somebody had been away from the church themselves for a long time and then come back. Question is, why should I care about going to church? What's the reason? Why, why should I do it? And so that's what we want to tackle uh, this morning. I want to take you back, first of all, to Washington, D.C. It's the early 2000s. I want you to imagine that you are sitting in the old Washington Post building, and a guy named Ed Stetzer, uh, who's up there on the, the left, he's going to speak to uh, the Religious News Writers Association on the difference between good and bad research. Stetzer's the ideal guy to do it. He's the president of Lifeway Research. As he's about ready to get up to speak, one of the news writers comes to him and he, and he, he says this. He says, why is it that you guys love to make up and say such bad things about yourselves? Now, when he said it, what he, what he was referring to is evangelicals. He said, why is it that you evangelicals like to make up and then say so many bad things about yourselves? Stetzer was really taken back when he got this question. When I when I read about this, I could really identify. Um, I, as you probably know, love to read. I am a voluminous reader. I read a lot about what's going on on the American Christian scene and the world Christian scene. And over and over again, I have heard people who are evangelicals say bad things about the church in America and around the world. And I'm always thinking, why? Why is this kind of thing happening. You know, you don't hear Buddhists around the world saying, oh, the state of Buddhism is terrible, you know. You, you don't hear atheists wringing their hands and talking about the terrible state of atheism around the world. You certainly don't see Muslims saying bad things about Islam. But with Christianity, it's different. To, pro, to quote Brad Wright at the University of Connecticut, he says, for some reason, today's American Christians communicate a certain amount of angst about the state of American Christianity, and sometimes it's more than angst, it's contempt. To demonstrate this, all you have to do is look at some of the books that have appeared recently in Amazon. One is The American Church in Crisis by David Olson, who says church attendance in America is going to drop by one half by the year 2020. That's three years from now. Not, not happening, but that's what he said. David Murrow wrote the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. He says the church is going to be totally overrun by secularism in 200 years. Well, I mean, three years to drop by a half, 200 years, it, it, it's kind of a strange statistic. But those are the kinds of stats that come out these days. George Barna wrote the book called Pagan Christianity. He claims that the church has been doing it all wrong for 2,000 years. We need to get back to what the Bible said. Very negative. 
David Kenneman wrote a book called Unchristian. Wrote a, wrote a new a new one recently, calling the church maybe church's beliefs maybe irrelevant and extreme. This is the tip of the iceberg. It appears that knocking the church is a hot trend in American Christianity. So why is this happening? Brad Wright suggests four or five reasons, but I'll tell you I'll tell you the number one reason he cites. He says, American Christian authors love bad news. Love it. Love bad news. Because if you're an author and you can cite some bad news, you motivate people to read. He says, sadly, American pastors love bad news. Because if you can give out the bad news in an introduction, you hook people into your sermon, and they're going to want to know how they can be the solution to the bad news that you talked about. If you can talk about why Christians are having bad kids and, and why they're bad employees and so on, then okay, maybe, maybe the faithful can really, really get it right this time. Here's the problem. The problem is that these studies and statistics are rarely critically evaluated. I'm not a researcher, but professional researcher, but when somebody cites a statistic, I say, well, show me the source. And I will go on Google Scholar, and I will look at the source. I, I, I mean, that's just kind of me. I, I want to be in the know about some of these things. And I will tell you, in many cases, the stats are junk science with a capital J. And not only are they just wrong, they're dead wrong in many of those areas. So what I want to do today is I want, to, I want to argue the sky is not falling. The sky is not falling. On the contrary, as I often state, Christianity is explosively expanding around the world and in pockets of the United States. It is growing with incredible vibrancy. Our, three of our four kids are involved in a, in a, in a movement up in Seattle Unbelievable movement, incredible movement. And uh, there are pockets like this around the country that are incredibly vibrant. So we're going to do three things. Um, first, I want to look at what Jesus says, because his, his, his views about his church matter. We'll start there. And then I want to present some science-based claims confirming what Jesus says. And you might think, wait, science-based claims? Like, how could you possibly test the church? You'll be surprised at what I found. And then I want to show you how you can put this into practice in your life. So we'll start with Jesus. Always a great place to start, starting with Jesus. What, what is Jesus' perspective? Well, in a nutshell, Jesus' perspective is this. He loves his church. He loves it. And he promises that he will grow his church so that it will be strong until the, time, until the day that he returns. To do this, Jesus gives us, the New Testament gives us seven pictures of Jesus' love. I'm only going to give you three this morning. As I give you these three, I want you to be thinking uh, creatively. I want you to be envisioning this. Use your imagination. Jesus loves his church, and it's demonstrated in these three pictures. Picture number one is the body. It's the body. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is in heaven we're on earth. Jesus is the head, we're the body. 
Jesus is the one who directs. We're the one, ones who follow. We see this from Romans 12, 4 and 5. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Now, when we think about a human body, we think about systems. Um, I have nerve endings in my fingers, so do you, obviously. Those nerve endings are connected to a bundle of nerves in the palm of my hand. Those nerves go, they're routed to the main nerve that goes through my ulnar, uh, my, my wrist called the ulnar nerve that goes to my spine, goes to my brain. And I never, ever have to think about those processes, do I? If my brain tells me to do something, I do it. It's a system. I was with my grandson uh, last summer, and my grandson got upset because he was told to go in. So my grandson throws a ball, just throwing a ball kind of anywhere, except that it was aimed right at my head. And in a split second, I went like this, and I caught the ball. I wish somebody had taken a video of it. It was an awesome catch. Now, how did I know to do that? I mean, muscle memory. My, my brain tells my eyes to see something coming at me at high velocity. Bam, my hand goes up. I, I'm, I'm unconscious of that whole process. In the same way, Jesus is the head of the body. And Jesus' commitment is to empower his body to do powerful things. So, you might wonder, does Jesus really love his body? I mean, seriously. Does he really love his body like when we're being disobedient, when we're doing the wrong things? Does he really love his body? And I would ask you the question, do you love your body? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about, do you compare yourself to supermodels or fantastic athletes? I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is, do you feed your body tasty things when you're hungry? When you're hurting, do you seek out a solution to the pain? When you're tired, do you give your body rest? Yeah, you, you, if we're reasonably healthy, we do those things. We love our bodies in the sense that we take care of our bodies when our bodies are hurting. Same way with Jesus. Jesus loves his body. And what he wants to do is to tenderly reach into your life and be an instrument of grace, of kindness, of mercy, of compassion, of healing. He loves his body. Moreover, he wants to empower his body in cool ways. John 14, 12, love this verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Love that verse. Because what this tells us is that the risen Christ wants to empower his body to do astonishing things. That means he wants to use you to do supernatural things. What it also means is that as the church is expanding around the world, we're going to see pockets where the church is especially powerful and especially strong. Jesus loves his body, and he wants to empower his body. That's picture number one. Picture number two is the bride. It's the bride. And what picture number two says is that Jesus not only loves his body, but he loves the church 
as his bride. So you, you, you think about this. Uh, we see Ephesians 5.28. Uh, the picture begins to be developed in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ also does for the church. And we were members of his body. Now he's continuing on the body picture, but now he switches it over to the bride picture. The scriptures say, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two are united into one flesh. This is a mystery. But ultimately, it's a mystery of Christ and the church being one. So the idea from Ephesians chapter 5 is that Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. Now to fully comprehend this, we've got to go to Revelation chapter 19 about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the idea that when we go to heaven, each one of us who knows Christ has an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's the time where our relationship to Jesus will be, so to speak, consummated. Now, let me explain that. In the ancient marriage customs, uh, a groom would request permission to marry a man's daughter. He would go to her, him, and, and if he agreed, there would be a contract. Once that contract was, was signed, you were effectively married but you couldn't live together yet. Because what happened next is the groom would go away to prepare a home for his bride. The bride would withdraw from her fiancé and prepare herself for the eventual, the eventual marriage. In a way, they were married legally, but they weren't living together yet. And then uh, on the wedding day, the husband and wife would come together and consummate their physical union. And then there would be a wedding celebration and it would last, in some cases, for up to a week. Now, what these ancient marriage customs do is they give us a little bit of insight into the church as the body of Christ. The groom enters an agreement with the Father, and that's like Jesus entering an agreement with God the Father to pay for sin. Now, the bride's got to agree in the ancient world. We individual believers receive Christ. But what happens then? The bride prepared herself for the groom's coming. The church prepares herself for Jesus' coming. And that's the place that we're in right now. How do we prepare ourselves for Jesus' coming? Through regular discipleship, through spiritual growth. Well, then, when Jesus returns, our relationship with him is consummated. Marriage Supper of the Lamb takes place. Uh, and there's a big celebration. So we are right now in the preparation phase. You have the Holy Spirit, which is the engagement ring. That promises you heaven. That promises you eternal life. And you are awaiting the full consummation of your relationship with Jesus when you come into heaven. Now, Jesus is saying, I am I'm the groom, and I am excited over my bride. I'm excited about the fact that we're in the preparation phase right now. Jesus says, I'm going, I'm going to I'm go and prepare a place for you in John 14. I'm, I'm preparing a place for you right now so that where I am, there may, you may be 
as, as well. So let me ask you the same question I asked before. How does Jesus really feel about his bride? He loves his bride. Think of you couples who are married. Think about how you felt on your wedding day. Think about that day. Excited about the wedding. Excited about the marriage. Excited about what's ahead in your life. Supposing somebody came to you on your wedding day and said, you know what, I don't like your fiancé. Don't like him at all. Here are five reasons why I don't like your fiancé. How would you feel toward that person? You'd be angry. Justifiably so. Timing is terrible. Timing is awful. Plus which, you want to defend the person that you've chosen to spend your life with. Listen, I don't think Jesus takes kindly to people who are bashing his bride and talking about how bad his bride is. He loves his bride. He wants to empower his bride. He is excited about our entry into heaven and about our preparation for that point right now. Now, the third picture is we've got the we got the body, we've got the bride, we also have the building. Now, look, I didn't try to do the cute 3B thing, right? Body, bride, building. It just, it just sort of happened that way, okay? We've got the body, the bride, and the building. Not as a church like a body and a bride, but it's like a building. So remember Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is an amazing statement because Jesus made this in Caesarea Philippi. He made it at the shrine to the god Pan. He took his disciples up there because he wanted Peter to make a bold declaration in a place where the world is doing their thing. And so Jesus says, who do, who do people say I am? Oh, there's this opinion, that opinion. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, on the basis of that confession, I am going to build my church. What confession? The confession that Jesus is God. The confession that Jesus is Lord. The confession that Jesus is Savior. On the basis of that confession, I am going to build my church. And guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. While they were standing there at Caesarea Philippi, you could see the gaping hole that took you into the cave that they thought was a portal into the underworld. And Jesus is saying, I don't care who we're dealing with. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's an incredible statement because we know from the Bible that um, the forces of darkness would love to prevail against the church. They would love to. And Jesus is saying, it's not ultimately going to happen. Did you notice the verb that Jesus uses? I will build, which means that it's a process. So far, it's been 2,000 years. And I can tell you, looking at the grand sweep of the Christian church, this is the best time to be a Christian. This is the best time in which to be a follower of Christ. We have more access to the scriptures today. We have more access to apologetic truths today. We see the, the, so many cool things happening. He will build this church, but it takes time. Largest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Uh, haven't, been, haven't been there. Uh, people who've seen this have said it is incredible. 
That was not built overnight. I'm told it took five years to build, which I think is incredible, just the fact that it took five years to build that. You don't build the, high, the tallest building in the world overnight. You don't build the church overnight. We're still in the process of growth and maturation as a universal body of Christ. But Jesus says, I'm going to do it. I promise you, I will make this happen. What I think is really cool is that we see tangible examples of this in so many ways. The church is growing powerfully in Muslim cultures. I heard just, just this week about a guy from northern India who talked about a disciple-making movement in northern India that now includes 35,000 people. 35,000. He said, I worked in northern India for 20 years. And he said, for most of that time, nothing. And then, and then it was like this geometric multiplication just, just took off. Never in my wildest dream could I envision 35,000. That's what we see happening so often around, around the world today. You realize that the Bible is going to be, the Bible is in over 51% of the world's languages, all the major languages, over 51% of the world's languages, and it will be in 100% of the world languages if things continue in just 17 years. Unbelievable. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And here we are in the year 2016, and yep, he has been building his church. Now, what, what, I, what I find happening that's, that's kind, of, kind of interesting is that when I see people in the American church culture criticizing the, the, the American church or the church in general, I'm just saying, I think they're out of step with Jesus. They're out of step with Jesus. Look, I, it, it's okay to learn from mistakes. It's okay to see sin, call it out, and repent of it. It's okay. That's a good thing. But to cop an attitude of cynicism is out of step with the risen Christ. He sees his church as his body. He sees his church as his bride. He sees his church as his, as, as his building. And those of us who know Christ need to, need to kind of accept that vision and say, Lord, um, I'm all in. I'm all in with, with the vision. Now, um, here's, we need to make a, a total shift in thinking right now and go from the Bible to science. You're probably thinking, how, how in the world do you look at science and find anything in science that would confirm what we just said? How, how do you do it? Science is not equipped to, to study that, or, or is it? So looking at the big idea on science, it, what we find is immersion in a local church is good for you, and the data, the data demonstrate this. So that's a bold claim. Let me give you a little bit of background. In the year 1927, Sigmund Freud authored a book called The Future of an Illusion. Uh, I, I've, I've been reading a book this week by Paul Weicker uh, about the 10 books that screwed up the world. And The Future of an Illusion is number eight in the books that screwed up the world. And basically what Sigmund Freud said is all religions, especially Judaism and Christianity, are, are bad for you, like bad for you psychologically, bad for you psychiatrically. They're bad. At one point, Freud said, quote, 
religions depress the, the value of life and distort the picture of the real world in a delusional manner. Uh, they're, they're bad. Now, Freud had no scientific basis for saying this. In other words, he did not formulate a hypothesis. He did not do experimentation. He did not, did not reformulate the hypothesis. He did not come up with now a new formulation. didn't do any of that. He just had his own intuitive sense that it was bad. And so he wrote about this in, in the book, Future of an Illusion. It was not scientific. Now, in, over the next 35 to 40 years, um, scientists would go back to Freud. Yeah, religion's bad. Freud said so. Well, you could, Freud is Freud, right? So you're quoting like this incredible authority. And it turns out that Freud was wrong. He was wrong. And uh, he's been demonstrated wrong uh, in some pretty interesting ways. In the 1970s, uh, people began using the scientific method to study whether, whether there were tangible benefits to the faith. One of these researchers was Dr. Jeff Levin, who is an epidemiologist at Baylor University. He was digging into the medical literature and he said, here's what's amazing. What, what I'm finding is that attendance at a local church service seems to be associated with greater physical health. Am I, am I the only one to see this? He begins to write about this in the academic literature. More and more people are taking that information and they're subjecting it to increased studies. But here's, here's the, the, the problem. How do, you, how do you measure religious adherence? How do you measure that? Well, they had to take something that was well-established in sociological studies, so they took church attendance. How many times did a person attend their local church? And for the past 35 years, this has been the gold standard of measuring religious adherence. And believe me, this has been tested every way you can possibly imagine. Do people who attend church have better heart health? Turns out they do. Do people who attend church report better marriages? Turns out they do. Do they report less depression? Turns out that is the case. Do they report faster healing from wounds? Turns out that is the case. Do people who attend church weekly have better recoveries from cancer? That turns out also to be the case. I'm telling you, this has been measured every way you can possibly imagine. So recently, uh, uh, Harold Koenig authored a two-volume work called Handbook on Religion and Health. They both are about a thousand pages long. I bought them. I bought them. Because I, if I buy them on Kindle, I've got an automatic concordance on Kindle. I can search anything that I want to search on them. And there are so many studies that it takes more than 2,000, a 2,000-page 2, textbook to categorize all of these studies. I'm telling you, it has been studied every way you can possibly imagine over the past 35 years. The people currently uh, most involved are Jeff Levin, uh, upper left, Harold Koenig at Duke, Duke University Medical School, uh, Dale Matthews at Georgetown, Bill Stewart, uh, who is a great friend of mine and a good friend of Grace Community Church. He was a, a medical professor, a medical school professor at the University of South Carolina. He's now in Las Vegas. They're writing voluminously on this stuff right now. So let me give you some, some examples. Here is the Journal of the American Medical Association. 
association of religious service attendance with mortality among women. So they do this study, and it says, quote, researchers examined data on nearly 75,000 middle-aged female nurses in the United States as part of the Nurses' Health Study. The participants answered questions about whether they attended religious services regularly every four years between 92 and 2012, and other aspects of their lives. The researchers found that a woman who went to church more than once a week had a 33% lower risk of dying during that study period compared with those who said they never went. Now, this is one study, but I will tell you, I found at least a dozen studies done by different people, different, different, this was the nurses' health study, by different study cohorts that said exactly the same sort of thing. One example, for, for, for instance, um, that I, that I found, this is the National Health Interview Survey, revealed those who attended church uh, more than once a week, now this is more than once a week, not once a week, but more than once a week, lived on average seven years longer than those who did not. One researcher compared this to the effects of stopping smoking. So th that's kind of incredible. Everybody you know, says, hey, look, to have better health, first thing, is, first thing they tell you is stop smoking. And so one uh, non-Christian researcher who's, who said, you know what, um, I better stop smoking and start going to church if I'm going to buy into the data uh, that, I, that, that I, I see here. Now, why would, why would all this be true? They, they, didn't, they don't know. They don't know. I mean, this is one of those things you can't, it's hard to test. We know that the association is there, but the causal reason, not too sure about that. It may be there's more social support. That's possible. It may be that there's a sense of optimism that comes with being part of a good local church. It may be that uh, attendance promotes higher levels of self-discipline. They don't know. They hypothesize about these other things. But these studies are the tip of the proverbial ice, iceberg. You want to live a longer life? Well, longevity of life is associated with regular attendance in a local church. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, let, uh, let me give you a, a, a second example. Uh, that's uh, second, uh, se uh, this is church attendance and physical health. About 15 years ago, Duke University said, uh, let's, let's dig into this in a really, really big way. So they assembled a group of doctors, and um, they decided to study um, religion and specific aspects of health like cancer, autoimmune disease, heart disease, the immune functions of HIV-AIDS. So they gathered with doctors, they gave them assignments, they did studies, they came back, and the book that came out was Psychoneuroimmunology, the link between religion and health. One study in particular was about wound healing. And what they said was that people who uh, have open wounds and want to encounter healing have a problem if they're under stress. People who are under stress have one rate of wound healing. People who are not under stress have another rate of wound healing. And they found out that people who have the kinds of experiences like regular attendance at a local church may have a 24% faster rate in the healing of their wounds. It's an amazing, it's an amazing study. The conclusion was, these are a group of doctors, it was a secular publication, 
was maybe people who have wounds ought to go to church because going to church is associated with faster wound healing. One of the things you find, find in some of these medical journal articles is that in, in the, at the end of the article, in the conclusion, there are these very tentative things like physicians may consider that going to church is indicated for people who are suffering with this certain malady, however they say it. Interesting. Um, here's, here's another question. Um, oh, another question, church attendance and marital health. There was an article that came out, oh, probably 15 years ago by George Barna. George Barna said, um, Christians are divorcing at the same rate as non-Christians. Christians and non-Christians both divorce at the same rate. Everybody heard that thought, oh, it's terrible, it's awful, it's, oh, it's terrible. Turns out it was wrong. George Barna is now walking that back. But it turns out that it was, it was wrong. A lot of people were bothered by his research, and so they went to see if it was true. Three people particularly have done great work, Shanti Feldham, Rodney Stark, and Bradley R. E. Wright. And their bottom line is this, if you are adherent to your faith as defined by regular attendance in a local church, your marriage has a high probability of going the distance, even being satisfying or very satisfying. Then they put it in the reverse and said active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly are 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preference. So it turns out that regular attendance at a local church is not just associated with physical health, it's associated with marital health. Interesting that another article came out about religion and family size. They asked the question, um, who seems to be having the most kids? And one of the things they said was that evangelical Protestants tend to have more kids because they tend to have a stronger belief in the future. You know, they, they have something to live for. They have purpose. And the idea is I want to I send my kids into this positive future that we envision for our family. Our family's doing this. Maybe our kids can do this. Here's another example. How about evangelicals and social action? Oops. Getting ahead of myself. Evangelical and social action. I have heard for years people say, boy, you know, Christians are just not involved in social action. It's terrible. Other people are involved in social action. Christians are just, they're not involved in social action. Um, I have a guy that I'm, I'm doing some work with who, uh, who said that to me. He says, you know, it's, a, it's just a shame that Christians are not involved in social action. Evangelicals especially, not involved in social action. And uh, turns out that's not true. Arthur Brooks wrote a book called Who Really Cares? America's Cherry Divide. Robert Putnam wrote a book called American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us. These two guys, uh, Putnam's book is up on the screens. These two guys have written extensively about who is really doing the charitable work around the country. And what, what, what Brooks and Putnam both say is this. People who are regular church goers, 
okay, that is associated with greater civic activity in the community. Why? Because the Bible says to do that. Jesus, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jeremiah 29, verse 7 through 9. Pray for the welfare of the city. In its welfare, you will have welfare. It turns out active attendance at a local church is associated with greater civic action out in the community. Moreover, it's also associated with greater giving. Families in the city of San Francisco, th think about this, gave almost exact, the exact amount to charity as the entire state of South Dakota. Okay, one city gives almost the exact same amount as the entire state of South Dakota. So, one of the uh, members of the South Dakota Community Foundation was asked, why do you think that's the case? And immediately said, it's religion, it's the church. He said, we've got a high percentage of people in South Dakota who go to church. He said, association with a local church causes you to be generous to that church because of the principle of tithing. He says, when you get into the habit of tithing to your church, that is predictive of being generous to other causes out in the community. Now, I will tell you, Putnam and Brooks are great researchers, but they're not the only people who research this. Rodney Stark has written about this in What Americans Believe. Bradley R.E. Wright has written about this in a book called Christians Are Hate-Filled Hypocrites and Other Lies You've Been Told. Great title for a book. Active involvement in a local church is predictive of greater civic involvement and greater financial involvement both in your church and in your community. So what does this, what does this tell us? What it says is that there are science-based studies that confirm active involvement in a local church predicts really good things for those who commit to it, but there's one big caveat, and that is it can't be a church that is legalistic. No legalism. They have studied a lot of, a lot of churches, and in, in, in those churches which show up as legalistic churches, and I will say that there are a good number of those around. Thankfully, I don't believe we are one. Um, but those churches which are legalistic do not tend to predict the greater health, the greater civic involvement, and the greater marital health. They don't. Why does that, why is that? Well, one theory is that if I go into a legalistic church, I can't bring my real self into the church. I have to bring a fake self into the church. And I have to manage that fake self so that it gets accepted by the powers that be at that church. Legalism crushes the good things that regular church attendance tends to predict. Now, <clears throat> um, by the way, let, let me just give, give you one example. One example. Donald Miller writes a book called Global Pentecostalism. He's not referring so much to the domination, but to the spirit-filled movement. Donald Miller says that the, the biggest non-governmental organization around the world is not the United Nations. It is the local church. 
He said, if you were to take the local church out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, out of Beijing, out of, out of Louisiana, he said, you would, you would see a noticeable difference in the quality of services that are rendered. And this guy says, I look, I look, I'm a liberal Episcopalian, okay? And I'm, I'm telling you, local churches dispersed around the world, very disconnected, very organic, are the largest networks of non-governmental organization, and they're doing amazing things around the world. Okay, so what's the, what's the application? What's the application? The application is invite friends into the body of Christ. And I would begin by saying especially, you know, hurting friends, especially hurting friends. Here's a medical journal article called the Rehabilitation Counseling uh, Bulletin, and the title is Religiosity and Spirituality Among Persons with Spinal Cord Injury, Attitudes, Beliefs, and Practices. All right, look, I mean, I would say that's maybe my worst case scenario. Um, and, and here's a study done on people who have spinal cord injuries. And the bottom line, in the abstract, you don't have to even have to buy the, buy the article. In the abstract, it says that people who are involved in a local church tended to find hope, meaning, and love so that they could cope with this injury better than those who did not. What I would say is invite hurting friends into the body of Christ. Here's another one. Is healing prayer the prevailing form of primary care medicine? Now, these doctors argue that it is. What they're saying is they did all the study of people. What do you do first when you encounter a symptom? And they said something like eight out of ten people, the first thing that they do is they pray. And they will seek the prayer of a friend who is part of their local church. So the application is invite people into the body of Christ, especially people who are hurting. And if you want to have a great opportunity to do this, try next Sunday night at 6 o'clock for our evening of healing prayer. Because that's a time where we, the body of Christ is in action, praying over uh, specific needs. Um, and um, the thing we need to remember is that um, well, this is not something that most of us do. Uh, Tom Rainier wrote the book, uh, The Unchurched Next Door. He says 82% of churches, uh, of, of unchurched people, that's misspelled, sorry about that. 82% of unchurched people are likely to attend church if asked. Did you know that? You probably, th probably think, well, I mean, my friend's not going to want to go. They're going to think I'm weird. They're, they're, they're going to think uh, I'm trying to put something onto them. And this is saying that they would, they would attend if you asked them to come. This book also said that only 2% of Christians ever invite their friends to church. So this, this shows us a tremendous opportunity. We have this, this place, the body of Christ, that is demonstrated as being a positive influence on people's lives. And by inviting people into it, we invite them into, into life. One more thing. People need to encounter the supernatural. The body of Christ is not Kiwanis. I love Kiwanis. They do great things. The body of Christ is not the Lions Club. They do great things. The body of Christ is not Rotary. They do great things. 
The body of Christ is a place where the invisible resurrected Jesus wants to fellowship with his very visible local church on earth. And so what I'm, what I'm saying to you is that when you invite people into the body of Christ, they need to know that they can encounter the supernatural here. And a lot of times that happens when we have times of prayer. So don't just invite them, but invite them into a place where they can encounter the supernatural. You know, a lot of people who come to the church for the first time or maybe come back to church after being away for a long time, they need a sponsor. And I don't think sponsor is too hard a word. There's words that they might not understand. There's practices that they might have forgotten about. They, they don't know that many people. So you being a sponsor to somebody that you invite allows them to feel really comfortable, like they're really, really networked. Part of the reason why we have a small group ministry here at Grace is so that it, it makes it easy to meet people and then be enfolded into the larger community that is Grace Community Church. Several years ago, Gary Habermas came to our church. Uh, he is probably the, the primary uh, scholar on the resurrection. And Gary Habermas, uh, this was in August, like four years ago, Gary Habermas had been up to two o'clock in the morning the night before. So I said to him, can we just do your message like an interview? He says, oh, thank you, yes, let's, let's do that. And so one of the things I asked him was, what do you think is the most significant new apologetic to come out in the last five years? He brightened up immediately. You see, I said, I tell you what it is. It's the science-based research on why the local church is good for you. He said, that's it right there. And nobody, nobody is writing about it. Well, there are more people writing about it now. I just want to encourage you. Um, Jesus loves he loves you like he loves his body. He loves you like he loves his bride. He loves you like he loves growing up and building up a building. And I just want to encourage you, live in the joy of the love of Christ. Let's be the body of Christ at Grace Community Church. Let's invite people into a fully functioning body here at Grace Community Church. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father God, we want to say thank you to, to you for this genius thing that you did called the body of Christ. Totally amazing. Where we can be among a group of people, we can be real. We can be real with people who will love us. When there is conflict, Lord, we have a, 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 a clear path to solve the conflict. We can encounter the supernatural Christ walking among us. We, we, we are privileged, Lord, to be part of the body of Christ. Lord, may we prize that privilege and walk in that privilege here, here at Grace. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.